morning, everybody. Good to see you out here. It's a beautiful day again. Wow. We've had a good run in Wisconsin, haven't we? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Um, if you saw on Facebook, we are going to be touching on a subject which can be kind of interesting. So I hope you're ready for the ride. Last week, we began our journey through Paul's letter to Ephesians. Uh, oh, sorry. If you have children in here under the age of six, and they would like to go to our children's church, now they can be excused for that. If not, I'm happy to have them part of the service. It's great to see kids in here. And like I said, I've, I've taught to dogs and chickens and cats and kids and adults and everything in between, so I love the ruckus. It's great. Uh, so good to have you here. So we started Ephesians last week. We looked at how the letter is divided into two main parts, both of which explain what Jesus inaugurated in his final hours before his death, the new covenant and the new command. There's the new covenant. Remember, God loved us and graciously made a way for us to be saved through the blood of Jesus so we could be members of his family by faith. That's the new covenant. And then the new command. Because of his great grace and love in our lives, we're to walk by faith in love, just like Christ loved us. So this letter was written to believers in the church to those who followed the way of Jesus. Remember we talked about the way was what they called Christianity in the early church. That means that all things we're going to talk about today are for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for them. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, then this is all for you. Everything we talk about today is going to be for you. If you haven't done so yet, maybe you are skeptical, or maybe you just aren't ready to put your faith in him. Then I hope as you listen today and catch a glimpse of how great God is, how great his love is for you and his church, then perhaps you may reconsider. The blessings we will talk about can all be yours by faith in Jesus. So if that's you, if, you're not, if you haven't crossed that line yet, please talk to me afterwards. We also noted last week that unity among the followers of Jesus is a theme in this letter. Against the backdrop of what we've experienced, even in the church, conflict, broken relationships, fractured uh, churches, divided homes, declining ministries, uh, unity can sometimes seem like a long shot. As humans, we can divide over anything, right? Sometimes it's doctrine, sometimes it's method, sometimes it's myth, myth, sorry, vision, sometimes it's the color of the carpet. The truth that we will look at today are meant to unify us because they are truths that are true about all of us. Not just me, not just you, but all of us collectively. So one of the things we're going to look at briefly today, like I said in Facebook, is God's sovereign choosing. Now this concept can be a, a, a source of division. There are whole denominations which lean heavily on the side of God choosing us. There are whole denominations that lean on the side of man's free will to choose God. The danger in tackling this important topic is that once we believe that we have it all figured out, because we're human and we're sinners, we tend to judge those who don't think exactly like me or who may have a different view than I do. And this actually stems from pride instead of love, which is what Paul is getting at is love. And that can lead to disunity, which is a tragic thing in our churches. So with that as a background, we're going to dive in. If you can, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you can, and you're able, 
Why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word? We're going to do Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 this morning. You can follow along on the screen uh, if you want. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, we have free Bibles out in the, the foyer. Be, um, take one and make it yours. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Amen. You may be seated. So this passage begins with a blessing to God. It says, Blessed be God. And it ends, in verse 6, with the phrase, To the praise of his glory. One important thing we need to, to realize before we head into this passage is that Paul begins this letter with a doxology with like a eulogy to God, like a praise to God. This means that the blessings we receive and all the things we're going to read about today in Christ are a means of praising and adoring God the Father. So when we read this passage, we need to remember that all of this, the blessings, the adoption, all of that stuff, is more about God, more about his grace, more about his praise, his power, his plan, his predestination, his purposes, and his will than it is about you or I. It's all about him. As foreign as this may sound to us, the letter of Ephesians is not so much about me or about you. It's a letter about God, about his character. And although this passage on spiritual blessings in Christ is about us, it's not all about us. It's primarily about God, who he is, his great plan, so as to bring our attention to him, so that we praise and we honor and we glorify him together. Paul's trying to gain rapport with his audience, not so that they just, they just change their lives, but to elicit praise to God. And then from that praise, then they begin to devote their lives to God. The world revolves around God. It doesn't revolve around us. And it takes some of us a lifetime to figure that out. At the end of this passage, in verse 6, again it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Everything we read in between is sandwiched with those things. It's all about who he is. To properly understand the blessings we have in Christ, we must first realize that this is an explanation of who God is. He is great. He is good. And the blessings are meant to draw our attention off ourselves and onto our great God. So that's the, like, we need to precurse all this conversation with that. Our attention is to be directed upward to God. A few weeks ago, I spent four days and three nights in a wilderness area in Montana. It was called the Bitterroot Wilderness Area. It's rugged, incredibly beautiful region. There are no roads, no cell towers, no homes. Uh, we did not see another human being for four days while we were in there. It's, uh, it's got its own ecosystem. There are places that I assume only God himself has seen. Incredibly beautiful. 
Uh, however, a wilderness is a fascinating place. It's full of raw beauty, silent solitude, amazing adventure, rugged terrain, but it's also full of danger and predators and difficulty and isolation. Food is scarce, water's hard to find, the sun is intense, there's no shelter from the elements, there's no safety net, and your insurance really doesn't work out that far. It's, meant, it's not meant to be a place where people live. So thousands of years ago, the Israelites were standing on the shores of the Jordan River. Remember, way back, think back far to me into the Old Testament. And they're looking across the river into the Promised Land. They had spent 40 years in a wilderness. And we say that and we just kind of breeze over it. 40 years in a wilderness where people aren't supposed to live. They had wandered around. They'd searched for water. They'd waited for food. They'd wished for shade. They'd cursed the sun. They nursed their sore limbs. They buried their dead. And now that was all behind them and they're standing on the shores and they have hope of entering a lush and fertile land. The land of blessing, the land of promise, the land of their dreams. There was water and grass and trees and vegetation and grain and wildlife and pastures and shelters and roads and all the stuff that makes it exciting. And this was God's gift to them. God's grace upon them. He was going to give them this land. A land of incredible blessing and they could hardly believe it. They had no idea what was in store for them. It was a great, great thing. And during that moment, God says to Joshua and to the whole nation these words. I'll read it. You can just listen to it. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. He says this. God says to them, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written therein. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So God brings a covenant to them, and he says, you do and I will do. He says, you do according to all that is written in the law, and I will make your life prosperous. This covenant with God was with Israel. You do what's written in the law, and the blessings will be yours. The land will be yours. If you do not do what's in the, written in the law, then what was going to happen? They were going to be removed from the land, and that blessing would not be theirs. It was a bilateral agreement. You do, I will do. And it sounds pretty good until you realize that there's no way that any of them could have kept that whole law or their end of the bargain. So there was no way the blessings would be forever theirs. It was always going to be temporary. That's how the old covenant worked, the covenant between God and Israel. Now all of us in this room were wandering or maybe are wandering in a desert, in a place of death doomed to die, searching for spiritual food and water, wishing for significance. We're pining for hope. We're waiting for salvation. We need a Savior. And as we read this passage, we are metaphorically standing on the shore, looking into the land of blessing and peace that God has promised us. Hope and significance. And again, there's a covenant. We looked at it last week. Jesus gives us a new covenant. Remember? As we saw last week, Jesus on the brink of conquering evil and opening up a new land for us, so to speak, initiating a new covenant, just like God had done with Israel many years previous. But this was a different kind of covenant. This covenant was not bilateral, it was unilateral. This means that the covenant was only contingent upon one party, the one who made the covenant. 
There is no do according to all that is written therein and you will have the blessings. It's just believe and you receive. Thus God is fully obliged to keep his end of the bargain. We received, we received the promised land, incredible blessings, for free and forever. They can't be taken away if we fail because he's keeping up his end of the bargain. There is nothing for us to do other than to believe that it's true. To receive salvation from our sins, freedom from Satan's rule over our lives, and freedom from eternal punishment in hell. We receive these incredible blessings which benefit us now and forever. And to receive these blessings, all we have to do is be in Christ. So we're going to look at that. Blessed in Christ. So the key phrase we read over and over again in Ephesians chapter 1, particularly, and also in chapter 2 and 3, is this in Christ, in him, through him. You'll see it in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. They all contain this phrase. When something's repeated in Scripture, what are we supposed to do? We need to pay attention, right? It means it's important. That's a key that it's important. It is only in Christ that we receive these blessings. All those who believe, as I said at the beginning, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are in Christ. These blessings are theirs. And if we are all in him, then that puts us all in the same boat, on the same level, in the same position, through the same means, Jesus. And I'm going to repeat that. If we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then that puts us all in the same boat, None of us can boast. None of us can say, I did more or I did less or whatever. We're all in the same boat. We're all on the same level, all in the same position, through the same means, Jesus and his grace. This is what unifies us. So we're blessed in Christ, and we all receive spiritual blessings. He says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Remember the story uh, we read last week about the riot in Ephesus? It was started by the idol makers. They were silversmiths who were making a living, forging little figurines of their goddess for people to worship. <clears throat> the city was full of people who were spiritual. They were trying to appease Artemis and other spirits. They would purchase these idols, and they would place them in their homes, and they would do rituals in order to gain her favor. And her favor would mean that crops would grow Hunts would be successful. Their business endeavors would be profitable. And I can imagine them offering sacrifices in her temple before the heading out on a great hunt, performing rituals to warrant her favor as the merchants from the east or the west would cross through their port city. And that's where Artemis was, and they would, they would do all that in order to gain her favor. I think we're not so very different than the people in Ephesus at times chasing after spirituality for the sake of prospering financially and physically. Many of us read this passage and we skim right over this word, spiritual. God has blessed us with every blessing, and we skip right over that word. If we miss this, though, then what happens is that we can become focused on the wrong kind of blessings. We may come to think that God exists to make our physical life easy, comfortable, profitable, or pleasurable. And when we don't experience those blessings in those particular ways, then we begin to question God and question our faith. It's not working, we say. 
But God is not to be manipulated. Remember, this is all about God. God is not to be manipulated. He does not work according to our will. He acts according to his will. He is more concerned with his purposes than ours. As a result, God's blessings in Christ do not always result in ease and comfort and financial success. In fact, quite often it's the opposite. We'll find that out in life. These spiritual blessings in heavenly places, they're not physical blessings in earthly places. These blessings do not have anything to do with how my portfolio is doing, what my job pays, or where my next vacation will be. In pagan religions, and sometimes in our Western beliefs as well, everything is more about appeasing the gods, whatever they may be, to make this life more comfortable. Paul is drawing our attention away from the physical life and pointing us to something greater. Perhaps your faith is unstable today. Could it be that maybe your focus is on the wrong kind of blessing, the physical instead of the spiritual? So spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Then he goes on and says, we are chosen in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. And as I said at the beginning, this concept of God choosing some people, and some would say, by logical conclusion, not choosing others, it's been a source of much debate and controversy for centuries. If one tends to take this to an extreme on either end of the spectrum, it leads to all sorts of messy, divisive, arrogant, and difficult conclusions. Now, I'm, a, I'm completely aware of who I am. I'm a nobody saved by grace. I have not written any books. I don't have a doctorate. I haven't been to the greatest theological places in the world. So I'm pretty insignificant. And I don't believe that I'm finally, after all the centuries, going to be the one pastor to crack the nut on free will and, and predestination. So... Um, but my intent this morning is to give you some thoughts on what I believe um, with the hope that you will continue to study and meditate on these things on your own through the course of these next few weeks. If you'd like to chat this week with me, or if you have an issue with what I have to say, I like black coffee with a little bit of sugar. Um, you can take me out. That'd be great. I'd love to chat with you. But if, God, if, God, if this idea of God choosing makes you a little unsettled, that's not always a bad thing. It means it's a sign that God is in charge and not us. If God always fits into the tiny box that we have constructed for him, then he's not much of a God. He's kind of like those gods, he'd be like those gods in, in, in Ephesus, like Artemis, that you could make a figurine out of and put there and fit in that box. It is precisely because he cannot be contained or fully explained that we find comfort and assurance that he is in control. And sometimes it means we can't fully articulate these truths in a way that we understand. So my opinion is that our finite minds were not meant to figure this all out. More importantly, I believe that since Paul's intention in this letter is to promote unity in the church, that he and God did not intend for us to divide over this issue. Knowing God chose us actually adds great source of comfort and stability to our faith. And we're going to look at that today. An author that I like to read, he's an, he's an Englishman, G.K. Chesterton, he said this. He said, as long as you have mystery, you have health. As long as you have mystery, you have health. Have you ever noticed that God is mysterious? Very so, right? There's a lot about him 
and about this world and about his plans and about his essence that's a mystery to us. I think we need it this way so that we have a sense of awe and wonder when we think of him, so that we stay dependent upon him, so we don't put the infinite God into a box, so we don't create God in our own image, and so our brains don't explode because I don't think they're meant to hold it all. There are things that we cannot and will not be able to understand about God and his nature in our fallen state. I truly believe that when we get our glorified bodies and we see him face to face in the eternal kingdom, we will understand. We will get it. It will all make sense. But right now, it's not going to all make sense. There are some things we need to just accept, even though they may be seemingly contradictory. So mystery is healthy. Keeps us in a good spot. Chesterton goes on. He says this, and it's going to be on your screen. He says, The ordinary man has always cared more for truth than for consistency. If he saw two truths that seemed to contradict each other, he would take the two truths and the contradiction along with them. His spiritual sight is stereoscopic. Like his physical sight, he sees two different pictures at once and yet sees all the better for it. In pondering this topic of God choosing us or us choosing him, because scripture does talk about both, we need to be more concerned with truth than with consistency. We need to be more concerned with truth than with consistency. The truth is, God did choose us. He chose us, and in choosing us, he loved us, and it's amazing what we see in that truth. It's very comforting. Incredibly comforting and definitively unifying. Like it unifies us together to know that God chose all of us. We're all in the same boat. Additionally, the truth is that God desires that none should perish and all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 In other words, we have a choice in the matter. We should not fight and squabble about who is right and try to harmonize this seeming contradiction. We should accept them both as true And when we look at life through both eyes, as Chesterton said, we'll see more clearly. We see two pictures which allow us actually to see better. Christian author Oz Guinness in his book Renaissance says this, relating to this topic, he says, First, the scriptures show plainly that reality contains both truths, not just one or the other. And we could go, I could could cite scripture after scripture on one side and scripture, scripture after on the other. So scripture's clear. There's both truths. He says, God is sovereign. Humans are significant. And it was God that made us so. Second, history shows equally plainly that human reason cannot explain both truths. Those who try to do so almost always end up emphasizing one truth to the exclusion of the other. One side majoring on divine sovereignty and the other on human significance. Third, and this is important, The lesson of scriptures and Christian history is that we should rely firmly on both truths and apply the one we we most need when we most need it. God, God chose us. It's a source of comfort and unity. So a few more additional thoughts from this passage on God choosing. He chose us in him. He chose us in him. We Westerners have a difficult time in understanding the idea of family or a collective group. We are individualistic society, a pick-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps 
We're self-centered, self-made people. When we Westerners read Scripture and come across the word you, we, we, like my grid has always been, we, we look at it as singular you, me. When more often than not, especially in Paul's writings, when, he's, when he uses that word you, it's, it's plural, as in y'all. All right? Spending time in a tribal setting was enlightening for me. Their family is everything. It's your identity. It's your history. It's your affinity. The individual is important, but less important than the group. Decisions are made to the benefit of the group, not necessarily to any one individual, because all are one. Land was owned together. Work and business was done together. Disputes in court were handled together. Children are raised together. There was no, well, I made this decision, so that's just how it's going to be. Each had their own identity, yes, but, of, but bigger picture was they were part of the group. This is foreign to us. The you here in Ephesians is actually corporate in that if you are in Christ, then you, we, us, y'all are chosen in Christ. Remember the Israelites. They were referred to as God's, what, chosen people. If you were in Israel, you were chosen and you were predestined because you were part of the group. There was an element of human responsibility. Those born outside of Israel could choose to be included in the nation of Israel if they wanted now today, the church, which is in Christ, is the predestined instrument or vehicle for accomplishing the, God's purposes in the world. Now, how does this all work? I don't really know. My mind often tries to harmonize this inconsistency, that God chose me and you and yet the group. God chose me before I was born, and yet I also had to put my faith in him. God chose the group. God chose the church to be his vehicle, his instrument to bringing his message to the world. And yet each of us has to make a choice to be involved in that. So we can argue and debate all day long, but then I think we miss the point altogether. The fact that in Christ, God has blessed us and chosen us. Most people in the world, and I find even in the church, think of God as a disapproving God. We think of him as a brooding God, waiting for us to mess up so he can just impart his judgment upon us. So many of us try to earn or merit his favor so we can appease him. And we do thing after thing trying to earn his favor. When in actuality, our God is a blessed God who loves us and graces us and blesses us, not because of anything in us, but because he is good and he is love. And this loving God chose us. And he chose us before the foundation of the world. This is part of God's plan all along. He chose long ago that the Messiah would be the one to redeem and restore humanity and all of creation to himself. He chose Jesus and he chose all those who would be in him. This was the cosmic plan all along. This also means that this is not all about me or about you singular as individuals but God chose to make a way for sinful people 
to have a relationship with him through Jesus. Contrary to what so many think and the the idea that God is this brooding God, God loves humanity. So much so that he sent his son to die for us. Like that's incredible love. It's so much bigger than you or I and it's to the praise of his glory. And it says that he chose us so that and there's two things he chose us so that we would be. One, that we would be holy. God chose to set apart those who are in Christ as his special people. His people are sacred. They are his. Remember from last week, we are saints if we're in Christ. He chose us for this purpose. This is why the church is so important. Being part of a community of God is so important. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul later in this letter calls this group of believers in Jesus a church. And as a church, we are the temple of God, God's dwelling place. We are his body, the physical manifestation of Christ to the world. So we are chosen for his purpose, not our own. We are chosen. In that choosing, we are set apart not just to bask in the greatness of these blessings that he's given to us, but to show the world who he is. And then he says he chose us so that we would be blameless. God chose to make his church, his bride, his family, blameless. Or some translators put it, faultless or without blemish. Forgiven, we are faultless. This is true of each one of us in this room. Even if others may point out our faults or if they may put the, all the blame on us. If you feel worthless or rejected, this is such an important truth for you. In Christ, God says you are faultless. The slate is clean. You can lift your head. You have confidence in God's approval for you. What an incredible truth because God chose us at the beginning. Each of us in this room were chosen to be holy and blameless. This is a story of God choosing a people, establishing a covenant with them, cleansing them, removing their blame and guilt, and using them to display his glory to all creation. What an incredible thing to be a part of. That should give us goosebumps as we think about it. And then he says, we are predestined, here in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We are all predestined through Christ to adoption. This is one of my most favorite concepts of all. And I think it helps in understanding the seeming contradiction of God choosing and our free will. It is the truth that God adopted us as sons and daughters. As we stood in the courtroom, surrounded by friends and family, the judge declared that Hezi was now our child. And I was struck by these significant things at that moment. In adoption, It means the child was in a terrible situation. In a wilderness, so to speak, with no parents. They were vulnerable, alone, and destined to die. They needed to be saved. This is true of all of us in this room. That's where we are in our natural state. 
In adoption, the adopting parent chooses to take the child into their family. The parent chooses to take the child into their family. They choose to love the child even before the child even knows them and when the child is in a helpless state still. The parents choose to care for the child, provide for the child, protect the child in the context of their family. This is what God the Father has done for us, all of us in this room, predestining his family in Christ as the context for his protection and his care. At the adoption hearing, the child is given a new name, a new identity. In fact, the old birth certificate is destroyed, and they are given a new birth certificate. It is as if the child was always theirs. Mother and father read the new parents. It's fascinating. The parents cannot simply give the child back, and no one can alter this decision. The judge cannot overrule it. They are now legal and rightful guardians of the child, and no one can take the child away. And this is what we experience as children of God through belief in Jesus. We are forgiven, given a new name, and securely joined to his family forever, regardless of what we do. The child as one of the family members receives all the blessings and rights and privileges of being in that particular family. And this is true of us as children of God. In the next two weeks, we're going to see some more of those blessings, rights, and privileges that God gives us as his adopted children. And this is really important. The child didn't earn it. The child didn't even really ask for it. The child didn't merit this. The child did not choose this. All the child needed to do was believe that it was true. Accept the love and the grace and rest in the care of his or her parents. This is how all of us enter the family of God, simply through faith. It's an incredible picture of what God did for us. He adopted us into his family. He did this through Jesus and according to the purpose of his good will towards all of us. God does not want us in the wilderness under the cruel and evil ruler of this world. God did not want us to stay in our helpless state, doomed to die. God did all the work to make it possible for us to be in his family, holy, his people, blameless. No one can bring an accusation against us, accepted by the Father and loved forever. To the praise of his glorious grace, it is so that he looks good, and he does. He does look good because he has adopted us, this ragtag group of sinners, and he's made us into his family. He is gloriously loving, generous and forgiving, and he's amazing, and he's our daddy. He's our daddy. So what should we do with this information? Well, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then I think, then, then think about the implications of God choosing all of us. Be grateful for the grace and love of God. This fact of God predestining us into his family should not be a source of division and dispute, but a source of great unity and love. We are all sinners saved by grace. We're all in the same boat. None of us can boast. We are all holy. 
We are all faultless. We are all accepted in the beloved one. Everyone in this room that puts their faith in Jesus, that's true of them. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, then perhaps today is the day you need to do so so that you can be adopted into his family as well. You don't need to clean up your life. You don't need to say a prayer. You don't need to do anything other than just believe that it's true and that it's a reality and it's there for you to enter into. And once you're in his family, God takes it from there. Understand it can be difficult and humbling to put your trust in Christ. So this, if this is you this morning, please see me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about it. It's the most important decision you could ever make. And I'd be honored to talk with you. But these are the blessings that we receive in Christ. Think about that. Faultless, holy, and adopted as his children. Our God is a great God. He's a loving Father. And it's a unifying thing for us to enter into that awareness and that understanding together. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word which explains to us all that you have done. You are an, an incredible God. There is no way in this world that we can put into words who you are and your greatness. So t- today we just want to offer you up praise and say thank you. Thank you for adopting us into your family, for giving us all the rights and privileges, for caring and protecting and and watching out for us, for loving us, for making us faultless, for making us your chosen people. Thank you for the comfort that we can take in knowing that you chose us even before we were born. Help us not to divide over that, but help us to, in unity, come together, recognizing that we're all in the same boat together, and it's all because of you. And we give you all the praise and glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.